0: Chapter 19 of True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. True Tales of Arctic Heroism in the New World by Adolphus W. Greeley Chapter 19 The Inuit Survivors of the Stone Age Yeho's hearts are fresh and simple, Who have faith in God and nature, Who believes that in all ages every human heart is human, That in even savage bosoms there are longings, yearnings, strivings, For the good they comprehend not, That the feeble hands and helpless, groping blindly in the darkness, touch God's hand in that darkness, and are lifted up and strengthened. Longfellow It is now well known that the first country of the Western Hemisphere to be visited by Europeans was Greenland, nearly a thousand years ago. The European settlement, the Christianization, and the abandonment of southern Greenland, covering a period of three centuries, has lately received interesting and exhaustive treatment by a famous Arctic expert who has brought together all existing data. Foreign to these investigations are the facts associated with the discovery, during the past hundred years, of three Inuit tribes of Greenland, previously unknown to the world. It seems astonishing that 900 years of Greenland's history and of its exploration should have passed without revealing the existence of the Eskimos of Itach, of Omavik, and of Angmaksalik. This narrative dwells more particularly on the finding of the tribe of Angmaksalik on the coast of East Greenland, by Captain G. Holm, Royal Danish Navy, through whose heroic efforts and wise recommendations, the tribe is now under the protecting influences of the Government of Denmark and has become a Christian well-cared-for people. In 1818, Captain John Ross, R. N., in an attempt to discover the Northwest Passage, though verifying the discredited discoveries of Buffin in 1616, failed in his special effort. However, he added a new people to the knowledge of the world through meeting in the neighborhood of Cape York, Buffin Bay, eight of the Inuits, now known as the Etah, or Cape York Eskimos, whom he fancifully designated as the Arctic Highlanders. Elisha Kent Kane was the first to have familiar relations with and give detailed information about these isolated natives, the tribe in 1854 consisting of 140 persons. In later years, the Etahs have been frequently visited by explorers whalers, and hunters. As the most northerly inhabitants of the world at the present time, they naturally have engaged the earnest attention of all who have met these hardy, kindly, and resourceful people. Cain's fear of their extinction was groundless, as against the number of 140 given by him, Peary's census figures of 1897 show 234 an increase of 94 in 40 years. Rasmussen relates that within the memory of man, but evidently since Cain's time, 14 Eskimos from the region of Baffinland have joined the Etah natives. It is reasonable to believe that the origin of the Cape York Eskimo was through similar migrations probably two or three centuries earlier. Prior to the 19th century, Practically the only known Eskimo people of Greenland consisted of those under Danish protection who occupied the entire ice-free west coast from Cape Farwell, 60 degrees north, to Tasjusak, 73 degrees and 24 minutes north. Traditions of the existence of tribes of natives on the east coast have long prevailed, but up to the 19th century there were known only a few individuals, quite near Farewell, which were visited by Wallow in 1752. Still among the Inuits of extreme southern Greenland were numerous and curious traditions of the inhabitants of the east coast, one to the effect that farce to the northward were some light-haired people of European complexion. Another tale oft told in winter gatherings was one, doubtless in ridicule, of the occasional Inuit who, holding fast to a barren land, came west only to trade and never to live. It is a beautiful legend, showing true and abiding love of home and country. Dr. Rink thus translates it. A man from the east coast of Greenland, from love of his home, never left it, even during the summertime. Among his principal enjoyments was that of gazing at the sun rising out of the ocean, but when his son grew up he became desirous of seeing other countries and, above all, of accompanying his countrymen to the west coast. At length he persuaded his father to go with him. No sooner, however, had they passed Cape Farwell and the father saw the sun about to rise behind the land than he insisted upon returning immediately. Having again reached their island home, He went out from his tent early next morning, and when his people had in vain waited for his return, they went out and found him dead. His delight at again seeing the sun rise out of the ocean had overpowered and killed him. The first definite knowledge of the eastern Inuits came by accident through the boat voyage of Captain W. A. Grah, who, under the directions of the King of Denmark, was searching for the ruins of the East Bygd, the colony of Scandinavians of the 12th to the 15th century. During this search, which extended to within sight of Cape Dan, Grah found no less than 536 Inuits living at about 20 different places. Of these, more than one half had never seen a white man. Grah says of them, The affection the Eastlanders have for their children is excessive, Notwithstanding the little care bestowed on them, the children conduct themselves so as to seldom merit reproof. The East Greenlanders look on begging, especially for food as a disgrace. As soon as a boy can creep about alone, his father gives him a little javelin, which he is taught to throw at a mark. He thus speedily acquires that dexterity in the management of this weapon— on which in after years he is to principally depend for his own and his family's subsistence. When he grows older, he is provided with a kayak and learns to battle with the waves, to catch birds, and to strike the seal. When the youth comes home for the first time with a seal in tow, the day is made a holiday, and the friends and neighbors invited to a feast, at which While he recounts all the circumstances of the chase, the maidens present lay their heads together to choose a bride for him. Their intercourse with each other is marked with singular urbanity. They are modest, friendly, obliging, and forbearing. When the howling of the dogs proclaims the arrival of strangers, the people hurry to the shore to welcome them and to invite them to their houses. The wet clothes of the visitors are taken from them and hung up to dry. Dry ones are lent in their stead, and if a hole is discovered in their boots, the landlady sets to work straight away to patch it. They are a gentle, civil, well-behaved set of people, among whom one's life and property are perfectly secure, as long as one treats them with civility and does them no wrong. Their veracity and fidelity are beyond impeachment. The northern lights they take to be the spirits of the dead playing ball with the head of a walrus. The principal encampments were between Kemisak and Omevik, beyond which placed to the north, said the natives of Kemisak, there were no inhabitants. The Eskimos numbered 295 and were called the Omivikians. Of their environment in favorable places, and their amusements Gra reported. The co had fields of a considerable extent, covered with dwarf willows, janiper berry, black cragberry, and wortleberry heath, with many patches of fine grass. The stream, abounding in char, had its source in the glaciers, of which several gigantic arms reached down from the height in the background. Flowers everywhere adorn the fields. Three hundred paces from the sea, the cliffs rise almost perpendicularly, with snow-clad summits, far beyond the average height. The natives had here assembled to feast upon the char, plentiful and of large size, the black craigberry and angelica, gathering them also for winter use. They give themselves up to mirth and merrymaking. This evening, to the number of 200 or more, they began by torchlight their tambourine dance, a favorite festival. Grau believed that there were no natives living to the north of Cape Dan, and that, when the greater part of the Eskimos seen by him moved to West Greenland in the course of a few years, the whole coast was deserted. This belief was seemingly, though erroneously, confirmed by the fact that while Clavering saw a few natives in 74 degrees north. Scoresby, View Ryder, Nothorst, and the Duke of Orleans, in their explorations, saw no living native on the east coast. It remained for the expeditions of Hall, Nars, Greeley, Amdrup, Holm, and Milius Eriksson to prove, by their united observations, that there was not only an Inuit settlement on the east coast, but that such natives are the descendants of the true children of the ice, who have crossed land, skirted northern Greenland, and thus come eventually to their present habitat. Their fathers were formerly inhabitants of the most northerly lands of the globe, of the lands of Grant, Grinnell, Greenland and Hazen, or Peary. Brief and transient may have been their occupation, of many of the various encampments during their devious wanderings in the long migration, covering nearly 2,000 miles of travel. Their summer tent rings and stone winter huts dot the favouring shores of every game-producing fjord, from Cape Farwell in 16 degrees north, northward to Fjord, Hazen, Peary land, 82 degrees and 8 minutes north, on their nearest known land to the North Pole. They traveled leisurely, seeking fruitful hunting grounds, and living on the game of the land or of the adjacent sea. They thus netted the salmon of the glacial lakes, searched the volleys for deer, snared the ptarmigan, lanced the lumbering muskox, spared the sea-fowl, caught the seal, slaughtered the walrus, and they are believed to have even pursued in kayaks, and lanced the narwhal and the white whale." While Milius Erikson and his heroic comrades obtained definite information as to the extreme northern limit of Inuit habitation of all time, and paid the price of such data with their lives, it was with equal bravery but happier fortune that Captain G. Holm rescued from oblivion, and thus indirectly raised to happier life, the struggling descendants of the iron men and women whose unfailing courage and fertile resourcefulness had wrested food and shelter from the most desolate and the most northerly land environment of the world. Once, in 1860, there came to the Cape Farewell trading station an Inuit, who had lost his toes and fingertips. Though just able to grasp a paddle with his stumpy fingers, he was an expert kayaker and threw his javelin with the left hand. He said that he was from a place called Angmak Salik, and that between 800 and a 1,000 natives dwelt in that vicinity. For nearly a quarter of a century, this report of the existence of an unknown tribe of Inuits remained unverified. In 1883, however, the exploration of this part of East Greenland was made by a Danish officer of extended and successful experience in the governmental surveys of southern Greenland, who fully recognized the hazardous and prolonged nature of such an expedition. The Inuits said that many lives had been lost in attempting the shore-ice of the east coast, and that a round trip to and fro Angamaksalik, far, oh so far to the north, took from three to four years. Thoroughly familiar with the native methods of life and of travel, this officer, Captain G. F. Holm, Royal Danish Navy, adopted the safest, indeed the only method, of coast transportation in the Umiak. The Umiak, called the Woman's Boat, as it is always rowed by women, is a flat-bottomed, wooden-framed, skin-covered boat, about 25 feet long and 5 feet wide, only the framework, thwarts, and rowing benches are wooden, the covering being well-dried, blubber saturated hair-free skins of the utter soak Grenland seal, resembling in appearance the parchment of a drumhead. the sealskin becomes quite transparent when wet, so that the motion of the water is seen through it. Sometimes a light mast carries a spread sealskin for sail, but as a rule, the boat is propelled by a short, bone-tipped paddles, which in the hands of several strong women carry the umiak thirty miles a day through smooth, ice-free water. When going near the ice, a heavy sealskin is hung before the bow to prevent the delicate boat-skin from being cut. When a little hole is worn through, the women deftly thrust a bit of blubber through it until the boat is hauled up on the shore, which must be done daily, to dry the sea-saturated covering. These boats can transport from three to four tons of cargo, and are so light that they can be readily carried on the women's backs over land. Holm knew that his journey must entail at least one winter among such natives as he might meet, so that his equipment was very carefully selected, with a view to the gifts and trading which are so dear to the native heart. The northward journey was full of incident and of interest. Not crowding his women rowers, Holm tarried here and there for the hunt. Besides, he wished both to gather information from an occasional encampment and also to cultivate loyalty in his reluctant crew by permitting his women to show their west coast riches to the east coast heathen. Here seal were killed, and there the polar bear was chased, while the sea-fowl, the narwhal, and the white whale were the objects of pursuit to the eager native hunters who accompanied the umiaks in their light, swift-flying kayaks. In voyaging there was the usual danger from sharp ice cutting the umiaks and necessitating repairs, and from lofty bergs and ancient hummocks as they crossed the ocean mouth of the ice-filled fjords. And alas, too often... There were tedious, nerve-wracking delays, when on desolate islands or rocky beaches the Umiak fleet was icebound for days at a time. Wintering near Cape Farwell, Holm, with Gard and Knudsen, put to sea on May 5, 1884, his Umiaks being rowed by nineteen women and five men, while seven hunters followed in kayaks. Gard devoted himself to the precipitous, ice-capped coast, and between 60 degrees and 63 degrees north found nearly 200 living glaciers that entered the sea, 70 being a mile or more broad. In Lindenoff's fjord at 62 degrees and 15 minutes north were found almost impenetrable willow groves near old Scandinavian ruins. Fine new ice fjords were discovered, which put forth innumerable numbers of icebergs, the highest rising two hundred feet above the sea. The western Eskimos were alarmed either at the ice difficulties which lengthened the voyage, or feared the Angakoks or magicians of the east coast, and nineteen of them insisted on turning back. Holm was obliged to send them back under guard. But with determined courage to fulfill his duty as an officer of the Danish navy, he went on with twelve faithful women and men, although he was not halfway to Cape Dan. As before told, Grah turned back in sight of Cape Dan, believing that he had reached the limit of human habitations. Great then was Holmes' surprise to hear find the last of the three missing polar tribes who, to the number of 548 individuals, were occupying the fertile hunting grounds of the Archipelago of Angmaksalik, which consists of about 20 ice-free islands to the west of Cape Dan, about 65 degrees and 31 minutes north, adjacent to the beautiful Sermilik ice-fjord. In this district the tides and currents keep open the inland waterways, so that seals are plentiful and easily taken, Thus making it an Inuit paradise, Holm and Knudsen her wintered eighteen eighty four to eighteen eighty five, and in their ten months' residence with these people, gathered a vast amount of ethnographic and historic material, pertaining to the lives of these extraordinary Inuits, who had never before seen a white man. Footnote: The data relative to this expedition is not available in English but has been published in full in Volume 9, Medelesser om Gronland, Communications on Greenland, in Danish text. With its generous policy, the Danish government has taken these natives under its fatherly protection, so that their future welfare is assured against exploitation, degradation and early extinction. End of the footnote. This missing polar tribe pertains to the stone age of the world, its weapons being almost entirely of bone, while its methods of hunting follow lines long since abandoned by Inuits, who have had contact with whites. Their high sense of fidelity was shown by Nafalik, who was placed in charge of stores left for the winter at Kasin Gortok. That winter his family suffered from lack of food, but although these days of terrible distress and prolonged hunger The stores of the white man were untouched by this faithful Eskimo. Of these natives, Rasmussen says, There is no people with a history which, as regards the bitterness of its struggle for existence and the eeriness of its memories, can be compared with that of the Eskimo. His mind can be calm and sunny like the water on a summer day in the deep warm fjords, but it can likewise be savage and remorseless as the sea itself, the sea that is eating its way into his country. Of their endurance of cold, Paulson records, Inside the house both grown-up people and children wear, so to speak, nothing, and it does not inconvenience them to walk out into the cold in the same light dress, only increased by a pair of skin boots, I remember seeing two quite young girls, walking almost naked on the beach, 15 minutes' walk from the house, gathering seaweed, though the temperature was about 24 degrees below the freezing point. As a dumb witness of their method of life in their permanent homes may be mentioned the house at Noalik, more than a hundred miles to the north of Angmak discovered by Amdrup, where an entire settlement of twenty or more perished probably of ptomaine poisoning, from semi-putrid meat, a delicacy among the Eskimos, as is semi-putrid game with us. On the platform along the back wall, as shown by the skeletons, the inhabitants had once lain comfortably between the two bearskins, the upper one with the hair down. On the five lamp platforms stood the lamps and the stone pots. The drying hatches above them had fallen down. But remains of bearskin clothes still lay on them. Under the platform there were chip boxes and square wooden cases, and on the stone paved floor large urine and water tubs. In front of one of the small side platforms there was a blubber board and a large, well carved meat through, and scattered about the floor lay wooden dishes, blood scoops, water scoops, besides specimens of all the bone utensils which belonged to an Eskimo house. Near the house stood four long heavy stones, placed edgewise, on the top of which the umiak rested, protected thus from the dogs. Scattered around were kayak frames and their bone mountings, hunting and other implements. Amongst the big heap of bones outside the house were the skulls of narwhals, dogs and bears. Among the utensils was a blood-stopper ornamented with a neatly cut man's head, which, recognized by old Inuits at Angmaksalik, identified this party as a northerly migrating band from the main settlement. Of the afterlife, a glimpse is given by the talk of an east-coast Inuit to Rasmussen. On a lovely evening, a broad belt of northern lights shot out over the hills in the background, and cast a flickering light over the booming sea. Puarajik said, Those are the dead playing ball. See how they fly about. They say that they run about up there without clothing on. Of the seamy side of life, he adds, But in the winter, when people were gathered together, the larders were full, and desires centered on the shortening of the long, idle winter nights. Things would be quite different, from the happy, industrious life of summer. Much food and sitting still, the desire to be doing, the craving for change, made people pick quarrels. Old grievances were resuscitated, scorn and mocking, venomous words edged on to outbursts of anger, and in winter feasts regrettable incidents occurred. Men and women, excited and goaded on by others forgot all friendly feeling, and on most extraordinary pretexts often challenged each other to insult songs, fought duels, and committed most appalling murders. It is evident that among the people of the Stone Age there exists the same inclination to exploit and perpetuate deeds of individual and warlike prowess that appears not only in modern history, at the whole, but also in news of current publication. Acts of kindness, deeds of heroism and displays of the fair and humble virtues that sweeten daily life are entirely absent from the old Inuit traditions. Yet these true tales depict the honesty of Nafalik, the humanity of Kalutuna, the fidelity of Brunland and the devotion of Mertuk. The total omission of similar tales of admirable and humane conduct from the legends and the folk songs of the Inuits of the Stone Age doubtless depends in part on the savage superstitions wherein magical powers and forces of evil are greatly exalted and in part on the disposition to dwell on the unusual and the terrifying. So there are reasons to believe that that the survivors of the Stone Age in East Greenland exhibit in their daily life human qualities of goodness and of justice that were characteristic of their rude and virile ancestors. Such, though inadequately described, are the newly found Inuits of the Angmaksalik district of East Greenland, the sole surviving remnant of the untutored Aborigines of the North Polar Lands, Their human evolution is of intense interest, as it has been worked out under adverse conditions of appalling desolation, as regards their food and their travel, their dress and their shelter, their child-rearing and their social relations. That the world knows the last of the missing polar tribes, and that this remote, primitive people is now being uplifted in the scale of humanity, must be credited to the resolute courage, the professional zeal, and, above all, to the sympathetic human qualities of Captain Holm and his faithful officers and assistants. End of chapter 19